0: If anything, the uh, Palestinian resistance on the ground is really punching a hole through the Israeli armed sector much, much better. Even though you know Palestinians don't have laser systems that can intercept Israeli missiles, but they have other technologies. The Electronic Intifada.
1: The Electronic Intifada.
0: The Electronic Intifada.
1: This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm your co-host Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Wynne-Stanley. So Asa, how are you and uh, what have you been working on lately?
2: Hi Nora, Uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, This week I was working on this story about a Scottish pro-Israel activist, Edward Sutherland, who is also a school teacher who posted... Anti-Semitism on Facebook using a fake name and posing as a "quote-unquote" pro-Palestinian activist to try and essentially frame the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Uh, This is a guy in Scotland called Edward Sutherland, um, who is mans this uh, every week in Glasgow, mans this uh, you know store with Israeli flags and whatnot, and posting some really quite hideous anti-Semitism saying that a jewish lawyer um had a big nose his big nose was at a joint and this kind of stuff um the lawyer who the jewish lawyer who is also a pro-israel activist may even have been in on it on the ruse um uh just really despicable stuff and uh the the daily record a scottish newspaper broke the news this week past weekend that um the guy Sutherland was being investigated by the teaching regulator in Scotland and he may lose his job. My favourite part of the article is the fact that Sutherland uh, is the head of religious and moral education. At, uh, <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> Can't make it up. Yeah. Right. Uh, like the David Horowitz Freedom Center. Yeah, <laughs> right? you know.
2: yeah. so um <laughs> that was a, a a good little story to run on. And apart from that, got some more interesting stuff coming out about the Labour Party and the manufactured anti-Semitism crisis um, as usual. So yeah, (laughs) what have you been working on, Nora?
1: Yeah, um, again, tracking uh, Israel lobby organizations and um, elected lawmakers here in the States who are trying to micromanage, you know, what what is being taught in universities, um, specifically, and of course, around uh, criticism of Israel. And there was a story that that came out last week. I profiled a student at Florida State University in Tallahassee who uh, was elected to be the uh, president of the Student Senate. Uh, He's Palestinian-American. He grew up... In the West Bank, uh, under occupation, experiencing the daily trauma of of occupation, um, and when he was a child, he, you know, uh, posted something on Facebook. For you know, even Palestine Legal called it you know anti-Semitic. There was there was no differentiation between like um, uh, you know a Jewish person and an Israeli soldier in in his post, and uh, but you know he was a, a child when he wrote that. And didn't know any better and has since been educated and is you know has been fighting for uh, justice and equality for all of the students on campus. Right. Um, but when he was elected, his opposition started diving into his social media history, found this um, you know and then started calling on uh, elected lawmakers around the state um, to, you know, condemn him, smear him as an anti-Semite, and uh, just, I mean, these, these lawmakers who, sh- who should be taking care of their constituents during the most devastating um, sweep of the, the COVID-19 pandemic in Florida, you know, the regional epicenter of the coronavirus uh, catastrophe, uh, they're instead of you know addressing the needs, the health needs, the e- economic needs, environmental needs of um, their constituents they're they're spending a lot of time bullying this student and trying to get him uh, taken out of his position. So priorities you know exactly. I mean it's um, part and parcel for how Israel advocates operate in this country, whether they're, you know, being paid by the Israeli government um, or they're just working in service to the Israeli government as lawmakers. So, yeah, just uh, continuing to cover (laughs) that topic.
2: Yeah, well, you've you've been the resident expert in the student Palestine Solidarity Movement in the U.S. at the Electronic Intifada for many years. Um, and the efforts of the Israel lobby to sabotage, smear and attack it. So, yeah. you know, as always, we appreciate your work. Um, we've got Thanks. a great guest on today's podcast who yeah. is, we did a great interview with Shia Hever. Um, I first came across Sheer's work um, when I was an activist living in Palestine in... Uh, most of the time, I, I, I lived most of the time in Ramallah, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Ramallah green zone. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Sheer um, at that time, I believe, was uh, working in the um, Alternative Information Centre in Jerusalem, which yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with as well. Yeah. Um, and I first came across his work in this great series of pamphlets called um the economy of the occupation and he really um has this kind of brilliant um material analysis of the the economy of the occupation of the of Israel's occupation you know exactly <laughs> how it functions in economic terms um the realities of it um how how it's works on a practical level the western corporations that benefit from it um you know so really great detailed forensic work that is of uh, immense amount of use um to the bds movement as well um and uh, he's also written more recently as well he's written and those pamphlets as well are actually um all available online you know and we'll link to them in the show notes of Of this episode, yeah, Um, and as well, he's written um, two books, um, and uh, you know we'll we'll get into all that in the episode itself, in the interview itself. But um, it was good to sit down virtually with Sheer and um, discuss some really interesting topics.
1: Let's go to that interview with Sheer Hever. Joining us today from Germany is Sheer Hever, an economic researcher and journalist. Uh, he's a member of Jewish Voice for a Just Peace in the Middle East. Sheer is also the author of two books and a brilliant series of pamphlets by the Alternative Information Center based in Jerusalem entitled The Economy of the Occupation. Sheer, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So we brought you on to discuss the Israeli military and its relative power at this point in time. Uh, your most recent book is The Privatization of Israeli Security, and we actually uh, reviewed this book on the electronic intifada. Um, could you talk about that, that book and explain its main premise for our readers uh, and, and why it's important to talk about right now?
0: Yeah. So the book is about the process of privatizing uh, Israeli security, how uh, a lot of the tasks that you, used to be the sole purview of the Israeli police and military have been gradually outsourced to private companies and also to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and, and that is also something I consider privatization. But I think for our discussion today, it might be interesting to note that um, the the main premise of the book is that the reason for this very intensive privatization, is that the Israeli security elite is in a deep crisis. Uh, the security elite is, is a group of uh, senior officers in the military, in the police, also in the prison service, in the secret organizations. And it's not such a big group of people. It's very homogenic. It's a couple of hundred people uh, who are who, who pretty much know each other and are almost all of them men, Ashkenazi, meaning of European descent. Um, with with similar, and, and consider themselves to be secular. It's very rare to, to see among them uh, um, officers wearing a kippah. And uh, this group of people are the people who used to really control the, the Israeli political sphere in a very strong way. This is These are the, the Ben Gurion and Shimon Peres and Ehud Barak and Yitzhak Rabin. These are the security elite. And they've been kicked out. Uh, they are now much, much weaker uh, than they used to be. Uh, they are in the opposition. You could maybe argue that Benny Gantz, the, uh, the current Minister of Defense, is, is one of the last bastions of that security elite. Uh, and, and he's a very weak politician anyway. Um, so this, this very weakened security elite uh, is turning to the, fr- the private sector. And to exporting the Israeli military expertise and security expertise, and their uh, this is what we all talk about when we talk about the the laboratory model of using the Palestine the, the occupied territory as a uh, as a laboratory and the Palestinians as as um, guinea pigs. Sorry for the expression uh, uh, to to test Israeli security technology on them and then prove that it works so that they can sell it as battle tested right. um, and uh, we are sometimes falling into that trap of buying into that marketing scheme and say, "Well, if the Israeli military is so strong that they are able to kill twelve year olds throwing stones, well what a what a powerful army it is but you know unfortunately it's not that hard to to kill children it's it's mainly about a choice, not about technology
2: That's, It's really interesting what you're saying about the this sort of Ashkenazi elite which used to be in the ruling political power in israel the sort of um liberal zionist or labor zionist tendency so would you say that this kind of perhaps i don't know if you would use the phrase but perhaps i would think of it as sort of the israeli deep state in a way um would you say they come from the sort of labor zionist tendency still now um,
0: I, I wouldn't use the term deep state. I think um, one of the reasons is that it's not so deep. You know, there's not that many of them. It's not. It's not so secret. Uh, you don't need to uh, to look for the deep state. State actually in the 1980s, there was uh, an Israeli sociologist uh, who um, Daniel Maman, who's uh, still working as a professor today, but he wrote his master's dissertation by simply interviewing each and every member of the security elite and asking them what is their second career after retiring from the military. And it was about 200 people. Uh, there were maybe 14 of them that he wasn't able to reach. <laughs> and and he could say, right. okay, how likely right. are they to then become heads of factories and become heads of city, uh, mayors of cities and that sort of thing. Look at the situation today. They are no longer getting to be heads of factories and mayors of cities. They only... Right. Can work right. in the in the military sector uh, or in the security sector, and that sector cannot absorb so many people. So, a lot of them are really in trouble. They're going to uh, and uh, starting their their little startups. That many of them fail. Sometimes they try to go back to politics, and then they don't get elected again. Um, so I don't think that looks like a deep state. It looks like like an old brass, like kind of an old generation. And and the, the most famous quote that is always uh, attributed to these people is how our uh, state has been stolen from us. They blame the new leadership in Israel uh, as the ones who who took over and kicked them aside. So so today, if you look at the new uh, people who are calling the shots, uh, they're no longer members of the security elite.
1: We also see some of them retiring, you know, from politics and going into like think tank uh, jobs and Israel lobby organizations around the world. Um, How how does that how does that factor in?
0: Um, Well, that's another thing that uh, that they could do. And it's not a very glorious career. Uh, It used to be a situation where where if somebody rose up in the ranks to be a general they would be guaranteed to be a CEO of a successful company, a mayor of a major city, or a minister in the cabinet. Uh, th- those were the highlight years of, of Israeli militarism. Now they have a problem, because let's say you, you, uh, somebody does make it to, to become a general, and then they retire, and they want to work for one of those Hasbara organizations and, and to do pro-Israeli propaganda, they are not really able to show their faces, because everything they did, in the military is going to be used to um, criticize their organization. And uh, whenever they will go to university, there's going to be a, a demonstration. So actually, these Hasbara organizations are also now saying, Well, we would rather have the academics, we would rather have the, the cultural ambassadors, so called co- cultural ambassadors, artists, that sort of thing to right. head up Hasbara organizations, the generals are no longer useful for anything. That's really interesting. So
2: Let's talk a little bit about the relative strength of the Israeli army. Um, It's quite often said that the Israeli military is one of the most powerful in the world. And I remember when, you know, I first came into the Palestine Solidarity Movement, what, about 20 years ago now, I suppose, 15 to 20 (laughs) years ago. Um, Quite a common sort of catchphrase used to hear quite a lot was that um, the Israeli army is the fourth most powerful in the world and probably the most powerful military in the region. It's kind of this regional superpower. Um, I mean, you've got a bit of a different take, though. I mean, and I suppose the world has moved on and things have changed. Um, So what's your view of the relative strength of the Israeli military in
0: 2020? Well, honestly, I started very much like you. And as a kid growing up in the Zionist education system in Jerusalem, uh, the first books I read were war books. Uh, which which extolled the courage and resourcefulness of of Israeli uh, soldiers and even before the Israeli soldiers, the the paramilitary groups. My grandfather was was a fighter in one of those, and I looked up to him as a, as some kind of a hero because of uh, how they had minimal um, equipment and training, but they overcame <laughs> impossible odds. And these kind of stories are very deeply ingrained. Uh, in in my generation in my generation and in older generations but no longer in the younger generations one of the re- things that that uh, i did because i was so much into that kind of war culture as as a kid really was to read a lot of uh, military th- um, theory books and the first thing that i learned from these military theory books is when you talk about the relative strength of of armies you always have to put it in context you don't measure the strength of a military by how many tanks they have, or how many uh, cannons, um, but, and even you don't measure by playing these kind of simulation games where you say, well, let's, let's imagine a scenario in which the Russian army and the Israeli army face off against each other. Uh, people of, of my generation used to think that the Russian army would be crushed in, in minutes, <laughs> but, but even that is not really how you measure these things, but rather, what are the tasks that this military force is designed to face? And I think that was really the heart of the crisis of the of the Israeli security elite, because they thought of themselves as war heroes. They met, they have these stories about how one brave tank stood up to, to an entire armored column coming from Egypt or from Syria and holding back the Syrian military in a conventional war. But the last conventional war was fought in 1973. That's the last time right, that yeah. armored columns really faced each other. Uh, and and the outcome of that war was not very clear from the very beginning now ever since then the israeli armed forces and all of them from e- even the air force even uh, the navy have become branches of a colonial uh, policing force a colonial army what they their task is to keep palestinians docile that and and People who, who uh, observed that from within the security elite were horrified by it. Most importantly, Itzhak Rabin, who, who started the Oslo negotiations by saying, we can't let our military become a colonial police force. And he had this conversation with his own cabinet, where he said, we need somebody to do that dirty job for us, the, the occupation. And we need somebody who will do that without the interference of, of human rights organizations like B'Tselem, and without the supervision of the Supreme Court. And uh, people remember that quote from him, without B'Tselem and without the Supreme Court, but they don't remember the context, which he said that the people who will do the dirty job without B'Tselem and the Supreme Court are the Palestinians themselves. And when was this that he said that? He said that in uh, 1993, when his own cabinet was, was up in arms against the beginning of the Oslo negotiations. Uh, And he wanted to convince them that the Oslo negotiations are going to free the the Israeli military to train for a next conventional war. Now, that next conventional war never happened. But right now, we are seeing a a military force in Israel that is completely unprepared for anyone who has the, the means to fight back. And that's something that we saw so clearly in 2006 in the invasion of Lebanon, when the government actually... Was very. They had trepidations about invading Lebanon because they knew that the, the, their soldiers are not really trained in actually fighting somebody who who's armed and can can fight back, and they knew that the Hezbollah is going to try to defend themselves. So they uh, tried to send only uh, certain units that they thought would be able to to manage this. But even the the most elite units of the Israeli military, as soon as they engaged and and came into direct conflict with Hezbollah fighters. They just immediately fell into their re- routine reaction, which is take cover and call on the radio and ask for air support. Because why would you risk your neck? You know, why, why would you try uh, to, to fight back? Um, and then, of course, that, that meant that even a very small number of Hezbollah fighters were able to hold back entire Israeli battalions. And that was a major uh, embarrassment for the Israeli military. This is, this is what it means when, when we talk about the relative strength of the Israeli military. They are not able to take risks, they're not willing to take risks. It doesn't matter how fancy and shiny their drones are and, and their uh, F 16s, or now we have the F 35s, doesn't matter. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, the same Israeli government that failed in Lebanon in 2006. They then decided to bombard Gaza in 2008, invade and bombard Gaza in 2008, cast lead 27th of December of that year, more than 1,400 Palestinian casualties, because they thought Gaza would be a soft target, you know, that it's like shooting fish in a barrel, they can't go anywhere, they can't fight back, they don't have equipment, Uh, so it's going to be an easy victory and they can win the elections um and uh, and of course like like almost always there is first an, a war than elections in israel that's that's how it works mm. um but but look what happened even gaza learned how to defend itself a little bit but in 2014 when the the even bigger invasion and bombardment came uh, operation pillar of defense um the the israeli soldiers were unwilling to go into Gaza. They said we're not taking one more step unless we have a drone above us and an armored personnel ca- carrier next to us giving us cover. And every building is possibly, you know maybe there's a Palestinian behind it with a, a, an RPG, so we have to to blow up the whole building so they don't have cover even if there is no indication that somebody's behind that building. Um, and and that uh, kind of, of uh, behavior by the soldiers, is, is something that really shows how weak they've become.
2: Right, so it's it's all about their, that's really interesting, it's about their relative strength compared to the, the tasks at hand rather than on paper how many tanks and jets and drones and,
0: you know, Yeah, yeah I, I should also say very clearly have. the task at hand is to make sure there is no Palestinian resistance. That's right. the one job all of the Israeli security forces. Is there Palestinian resistance? Right. Of course there is. So so they've failed and they continue to fail. And uh, the customers of Israeli weapons are, are actually taking note of that. And you can see that the, uh, in the long term, the, the overall trend in Israeli arms exports is going down. Interesting. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit more? Because, we're,
2: I mean, we, we do always see these uh, Israeli arms companies... Um, manufacturing their weapons and marketing them as field tested and so forth. Yeah. Um. And a theme of uh, Israeli Hasbara, uh, you know, propaganda in the UK is not so much necessarily weapons exports, but um, is um, the fact that Israeli imports uh, into the UK are going up and up and up. So. Um, I'm quite interested to hear that and to learn that um, the long-term mm-hmm. trend is downwards.
0: Yeah, well, uh, there used to be a lot of uh, arm companies in Israel because the way that um, the the licensing the, the licensing system works for the Israeli military sector is that every officer of a rank of colonel or higher can get an arms trading license almost automatically. There is very little supervision from the Ministry of Defense when it comes to those re- retirees from the security services so a lot of them just started their own companies and started building and uh, uh, marketing their own weapons and uh, they focused on very specific markets mainly those markets where they would not come into con- competition with the big us arms companies right uh, in arms companies uh, so the bi- the really big companies, whether it's Lockheed Martin or Boeing or Raytheon or Thales um, or Bay Systems in, in, in the UK, they would rather not get not sell weapons to small militias and mili- and criminal organizations and rebel groups, because those groups the, the the political cost of selling to these groups is very high and their budget is very small, so it does it's not worth it less profits, less profits. Yeah. Yeah. But for the Israeli sector, that was uh, uh, they they cultivated this kind of um, reputation as as the ones who don't ask questions. And and that's why in some some war torn countries in Africa, Israel is known for the brands of of their uh, guns, uh, more than anything else. uh, because that's what people know about Israel. But um, but that changed. In many ways because many of these small companies uh fi- found themselves too small to survive and they started consolidating so we have basically now one very successful israeli arms company which is called elbit systems mm-hmm. and elbit systems also has a couple of uh, factories that are subsidiaries in the uk so i'm sure asa you've <laughs> encountered their operations in the uk um, yeah. and they work very closely with the united states as well uh, and they provide um, uh, helmets for the uh, attack helicopters and attack planes, uh, pilots uh, for for those who buy uh, US attack helicopters and attack planes. Um, so that's something that, that Elbit Systems develops. But if we just look at Elbit Systems, they had the highest sales in 2009. Then they reached that same peak again in 2012. But that's measured in U.S. dollars, and the value of the U.S. dollar is going down. We have to account for inflation. So they actually haven't really reached that peak again in 2012. And then um, they they continue to, to um, expand their sales and, and uh, b- by buying small companies. Uh, but when they do that, the other companies disappear. So the overall exports of the Israeli arms sector is actually not going up. You just, you just have the, this illusion because you're only noticing the biggest companies. Uh, according to CIPRI, the uh, Stockholm Institute uh, uh, for uh, Peace uh, uh, Research, uh, they have a list of the hundred biggest arms companies in the world. There used to be four Israeli companies there. Now there are only three. And their relative positions in the list haven't changed that much. So So this really shows a trend downwards. Um, Now, Elbit Systems bought in 2018 uh, IMI, Israeli Military Industries, which used to be one of the biggest, one of the the, uh, three biggest state-owned companies, arms companies in Israel. IMI is the company that built the Merkava tank, for example, uh, and, and rockets and so on. And IMI also provides about Um, well, I don't know exactly, but a very large percentage of the um, weapons that are used by the Israeli land forces. When Elbit bought IMI, they now control 80% of all of the uh, weapons that are bought by the land forces of the Israeli military. So uh, armor divisions, artillery, infantry, so on. Um, And now because they're a monopoly, they can set up the price. So that means that we can look at the Israeli military uh, defense budget, which is which is going up every year, but it's not going up as fast as the other budgets actually. Um, and we can ask ourselves, is that worth the same number of guns, ammunition, rounds, shells as it was last year? Actually, no. That is also going down because uh, the only way for these companies to survive is to become monopolies within the Israeli sector. And, and um, Brace their their finances on the local market, on the domestic market, uh, because they can't really rely on the on on the foreign exports. And if I can say just one last thing about this, also the U.S. aid to Israel has changed dramatically. Um, I'm I'm sure you you heard about the memorandum of understanding that uh, President Obama signed with Netanyahu just before leaving office which was mainly reported as the U.S. increasing aid to Israel. But that is really uh, inaccurate. First of all, it locks the aid to a very specific amount, which is not bound by inflation. So um, a conservative estimation of what would be the inflation in the next 10 years shows that actually aid is going down, not up. But more importantly, the U.S. revoked a special privilege, privilege that only Israel had from all countries in the world that received military aid from the United States to use a small part of that aid to buy from their own companies. And that privilege is gradually revoked over the course of about five years. So Elbit Systems, uh, Aerospace in, uh, Israeli Aerospace Industries, IAI, Rafael, these are the three biggest companies. Uh, they've set up subsidiaries in the United States so they can use some of that aid to sell to themselves using U.S. aid money uh, and now they cannot do that anymore. Yeah. So for them it's, right. a, it's a major blow. Hmm. Interesting.
1: Can we talk a little bit about the um, the trend that we're seeing now with surveillance technology? So you know maybe there's like a stagnation of sorts in you know in weapons and arms um, uh, dealings, but but now we're seeing, you know, Israeli-backed, um, you know, the NSO group, for example, um, malware, Black Cube, exactly Black Cube, malware um, software that's being developed by developed by Israel and used um, by, you know, certain governments around the world to spy on their own citizens, to blackmail um, other governments or other, you know, uh, other people. Um, can you talk about this uh, this surge of surveillance technology coming from the Israeli uh, yeah. sector and 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 the significance
0: of that right now? Yeah well, uh, of course we don't we don't know all of the facts. We don't know how much money these companies are making. We don't know how important that is to overall israel the, the, uh, the Israeli economy. Um, nobody's arguing that this has become a major Israeli export. So uh, if but but there is a kind of myth as if only the Israelis have this kind of offensive cyber capability, which means that they kind of dominate this market of offensive cyber as opposed to defensive cyber, which means uh, the ability to hack people's phones and and survey them and use that information um, against them in in the most uh, aggressive possible way. And that's also why they are selling to governments like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Mexico, uh, which are using this uh, uh, against uh, human rights activists and yeah. against journalists. Yeah, against journalists, absolutely. Yeah, but there was a um, an Israeli journalist, Hagashe Haggash for Haaretz, managed to get a series of interviews with workers of NSO in Black Cube, and talk to them about their work. They didn't. Uh, they open up very much to her, of course, but they did manage, a, but, but she did find out something very interesting from, from those interviews, that these companies don't necessarily have any kind of technology that other companies don't have. It's not that they have some kind of Israeli secret that ma- makes it possible for them to hack the phones, but others can't. It's that most big cyber companies in the world don't want to to get put themselves at risk by acting in such a way that is clearly illegal and violate human rights and and can get them such bad press uh, and can get them in trouble with the law the the most of these companies would say any kind of industrial espionage on us soil is absolutely out of out of bounds should never be done because no company would would then be uh, taken seriously and or or allowed to continue to work And NSO, they actually uh, went after Facebook. They uh, hacked, uh, I mean, there's a very strong indication uh, that they have hacked uh, 1,400 WhatsApp accounts. WhatsApp has been purchased by Facebook.
2: Yeah.
0: And not that I think that Facebook is the big defender of human rights by any stretch of the word but they didn't like that very much and they are a, a... because it is quite brazen isn't it this is the thing it's
2: like it's like <laughs> right. what you're saying like it's, it's it's really interesting because they you're right it's not that um israeli companies have some sort of magic technology but they seem maybe not quite unique but they seem um quite forthright and almost open about it in a way that other countries maybe aren't like aren't like what what accounts for
0: that do you think why are they so brazen? I think they're brazen because they're desperate. I think they're brazen because they are um, graduates of the Israeli famous high-tech company uh, 8200 or 8200 or however you want to call it, which is a, um, this um, intelligence unit um, named after its zip code. That's why it has this sort of strange name. Uh, and this is a, an, an intelligence unit that has become known in Israel as basically a job Um, or or a a person power agency that if you come from that company, you should find it very easy to find a job in the high tech sector. Not everybody finds that very easy. And 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 then they feel a lot of pressure that getting into that unit is very difficult. It's basically only open to people who had the best high school education. So again, almost only Ashkenazi Jews of secular upbringing. and they um, are are willing to do anything, not I mean not every graduate of that unit, but those who really wanted to get in for the money, they're willing to do anything. They're very desperate. They want a company that's successful and they're willing to take uh, very, very high risks. Now, Facebook has um, launched a lawsuit against NSO. And the lawsuit has been accepted by an American court. Yeah, we just saw this today. It's breaking news. I mean, this it's interesting to see what, what's going to come out of this case. I don't think that NSO has a very strong uh, chance in an American court against Facebook. Yeah. So they, they did just win a case against um, Amnesty International in an Israeli court. Yeah. Because Amnesty International launched a, a lawsuit... Uh, in an Israeli court because uh, NSO have, have uh, violated the um, uh, privacy of of uh, political dissenters from from Saudi Arabia uh, who lived in Canada but the Israeli court just threw out the case because they say well NSO is, is supervised by the Ministry of Defense and that's enough for us.
2: Uh, <laughs> I mean that's a very that's very interesting rationale, isn't it that, that it tells us that the NSO these kind of almost... I mean, they could be portrayed as rogue mercenary groups, but that decision by the court shows
0: that they they are protected by the Israeli security establishment, right? Um, I think the Israeli security establishment has a problem because they cannot acknowledge that they uh, license this kind of activity. I think in reality, it's not that they choose to license it, it's just they choose not to regulate. There are only two workers in the Ministry of Defense who are in charge of regulating the arms export, two. And they, of course, uh, approve almost everything that gets to their desk without checking it, without understanding it. I don't know if these two people happen to have, to, to be qualified to understand what is offensive cyber and what should be allowed and what shouldn't. Uh, so, it's, so there is no supervision, no regulation, but the Ministry of Defense cannot admit to that. So that's why they put pressure on the court to throw out the case, uh, as they as they often do. And many times, when you have a situation in which uh, an Israeli company does work like a kind of rogue mercenaries, we had the, the company Aeronautics operating in the Ivory Coast, uh, providing drones uh, to the rebels. And the French military who was, uh, there was a French peacekeeping force in the Ivory Coast that caught these drones and said, Well, these are made in Israel. And this is the, the Aeronautics company, uh, does the Aeronautics Company have authorization from the Israeli Ministry of Defense for arming the rebels in the Ivory Coast? Aeronautics' response was, uh, these are drones are not weapons, they're communication devices, so we don't need to register them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Mm, very convenient. Yeah. Wow. I, I also wanted to say something quickly about Black Cube, because you mentioned Black Cube as well. Uh, there was a fascinating documentary done yeah. in, in Israel by uh, Ilana Dayan, a kind of... Uh, Show that does uh, a bit, a little bit like 60 Minutes, uh, kind of show where they do in-depth um, investigative journalism about Black Cube, and they gathered uh, some of the victims of Black Cube and uh, some of the customers, and and did interviews with them, and I think. I, it, it's un, unfortunately not not been translated the show, but but one thing that really struck me is that they go through several cases. There are about eight cases highlighted in the whole show, one hour show. None of them has been successful. Not even once has Black Cube you, with all you know they, they work for Harvey Weinstein to try to That's get right. uh, the the women who uh, were uh, assaulted by him not to complain. But they did complain. You know, that wasn't successful. As atrocious as what they did was, it didn't work. Right. Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, it's it's important also to, to note that these surveillance uh, technologies have also been, you know, field tested, battle proven, uh, first and foremost against Palestinians um, who have been highly, highly surveilled and spied on. Um, yeah.
0: But it's a different kind of surveillance. There are two kinds. Yeah. there is w- what you call human and what you call sigint.
1: Explain that a little bit.
0: Yeah, human is is human intelligence, and sigint is signal intelligence. And uh, what the the Israeli various intelligence organizations have a very long history of u- using both, but mainly the human. Human intelligence means uh, to go into the the shoes of the person you're surveilling. That means learning Arabic, learning the culture, learning the foods that that Palestinians like to eat and the music they like to listen to uh, so that you can really infiltrate the society to the level that you will know that a a certain person is planning to become politically active or or even military active before they know it. That is human. But that's no longer what the Israeli intelligence organizations are doing. They're doing SIGINT, which is um, using basic surveillance, or not, not basic, very sophisticated surveillance technology, to be able to tell where every individual is, on what are their coordinates, what's their blood pressure and their body temperature. Uh, but, but what are they thinking? That's a different issue. Today, almost all Israeli uh, police, military, and also many of the intelligence workers don't even bother learning Arabic. That's a big difference. Uh, And and it's something that happens to all empires, all colonial empires. At first, they really take the time and the effort to study the people that they uh, dominate and, and colonize. But at some point, they become complacent. And those intelligence officers that get too much interested in the local culture, they're accused of going native, you know. The British Empire used to bring to, to recall their officers that would l- learn the language, get too integrated into the local culture in India, uh, because they were going native, and replace them with uh, officers that speak Latin and ancient Greek, <laughs> because those <laughs> w- w- could be trusted not to mingle too much with the local population. But of course, it means that the quality of their intelligence goes down. So Palestinians are, of course, being surveilled probably more than any other group. Uh, of people in the world, uh, but the question is, what is that surveillance worth? And um, I've I've read some very interesting articles written by Israeli intelligence officers in uh, military magazines, where the they're they're su- selling their wares, hawking their uh, expertise, and they're talking about the high quality of intelligence that they have on people on Gaza, for example, by saying we can know exactly when that. Person is standing next to a window so that we can fire a missile through that window Crazy. Yeah, that, that level of surveillance is very high, but do they also have the ability to know which person is the right person to shoot a missile at? Uh, if if you want to dismantle the, the resistance movement and that they don't know and in the end they end up killing a lot of innocent civilians uh, And it doesn't matter how, how accurate your missiles are if you uh, don't know anything about the person you're shooting at.
2: Let's change track a little bit here. Um, Let's talk about the uh, Israeli army specifically. Um, So in theory, conscription to the Israeli army is mandatory for all Israelis once they reach 18, I believe, for all men and women. But you've made the point in the past um, that in practice,
0: the rate of conscription is actually quite low, isn't it? Could you talk about that a little? I'll start by saying that I also didn't serve in the military. I find my way out through the easy way, which a lot of people do, which is pretending to be crazy. Uh, mm. That's, uh, But, but of course, there are many other people uh, who don't serve in the military using various means. So, for example, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel are legally supposed to enlist as well. They just are all exempt before even they get the summons, because uh, the, the Ministry of Defense doesn't trust them. <laughs> Then you have the ultra-Orthodox, uh, which are still exempt from service, even though uh, there's a, a new uh, battalion specifically or uh, for, for ultra-Orthodox soldiers, it's called Netzach Yehuda, it has been exposed um, um, about last year, that this whole battalion is a sham, and in fact, uh, it's just Populated by people who, who are somehow relatives of ultra-orthodox Jews, but are not really ultra-orthodox themselves And they right. only sign a paper to show that they're ultra-orthodox So the government can claim that they're recruiting the ultra-orthodox But the real ultra-orthodox people and um, most of them are anti-zionists And yeah. they would refuse to serve in the military Even if it didn't clash with their plans to, to study uh, the bible uh, uh, Or to, to study religion Um so the there was almost a 100% rate of conscription amongst secular Jews uh, and also national orthodox uh, Jews so these are the um religious Jews but but not the ultra orthodox the the national orthodox which which we often see them in in the colonies um and and they certainly tend to be quite militaristic because for them the the state is part of the theology land is part of the theology so they certainly do go to the military. And it used to be almost 100%, but um, the um, decline has been very, very steady. Now, about 10 years ago, slightly more than 10 years ago, the Israeli uh, Central Bureau of Statistics did a survey among young Israelis where they asked them, did you serve in the military? So they kind of hacked the system a little bit because this information is supposed to be secret, but they had a survey which was about a lot of other things. And they just put that question in there. And a lot of journalists noticed that the question was there and they realized that only 70% of young Jewish men served. Women, it was about 40% Jewish women, because for women it's easier to avoid military service. Um, and if you take into account the fact that not all Israeli citizens are Jews and that among Palestinians, the rate of conscription is very, very low, I mean, you have the Druze, you have the uh, Circassians, but uh, but they are still less than five percent of the population put together. Um, and also there also among them there is a high level of of uh, refusal. There are a lot of political prisoners, uh, Druze, who refuse to serve in the military. Um, so that's that's data from about uh, uh, slightly over ten years ago. And then ten years ago the uh, the military realized that the the numbers are out, so they actually gave a report to the Knesset. And said openly, 48% of Israeli citizens serve in the military. We have to trust their data because we don't have another source of data. We have to trust mm. what they're saying. But this was 10 years ago. So it has to be less than 48% since then. And the most, the, the, I think most of the people who don't go to the military, even if they can, is not because they're leftists. It's not because they secretly uh, oppose the, the occupation or anything like that but it's because they don't want to be bothered, because yeah. they don't want to make sacrifices. And it's part of the of the process that happens to a colonial society. The generation of my parents and their parents w- was raised on the idea of ultimate sacrifice. You have to, uh, to sacrifice for the nation, uh, you have to fight and shed your blood so that you will have that state. But why really? The next generation is asking, well, my parents and grandparents shed their blood already. They, they gave everything for the nation. I want to enjoy it now. Why should I, you know, uh, break into homes in the middle of the night and drag children from their beds? Why should I stand eight hours in the checkpoint uh, in the sun and, and ask uh, to, to see people's ID? Um, I, w- I would rather do something else with my life and, and just enjoy the fruits of the hard work that my parents and, and grandparents did. And so they find some way to avoid military service. So
2: uh, it's fascinating. So, I mean, even 10 years ago, 48%. So it's uh, kind of uh, it's not a majority of Israelis don't say I mean this. So is it just you you think this kind of I suppose you could describe it as colonial complacency. Does this
0: account for why it's so low then? And what does that tell us, do you think? Well, well, it's I, I don't know if I would call that thing specifically complacency. It's more of a sense of entitlement right right it's not right. that uh, that they are saying the Palestinians are um, are not a threat but maybe they're saying the the Palestinian may be a threat but it's no longer should be our, our uh, responsibility to deal with that somebody should do it for us because we are the masters of this country right so if if so sounds like from what you're saying that it's
2: possible that the, the... Uh, rate of conscription could shoot back up again if there were to be
0: like a major, for example, a major regional war? Um, well, yeah. if, you, if you talk to a lot of young Israelis, uh, especially the ones that are wavering about military conscription and that sort of thing, and you tell them, what do you think is going to happen if there's going to be a major war? What do you think uh, if Iran will get nuclear weapons and all that stuff? The most common answers you'll get is not, oh, then in that case, I'm going to put down everything I do and go and join the military. The, the answers would be, I I will try to find a way to leave the country. I will move with my family to Berlin. I will try to find a job in the United States. I would, that that's the, and, and a lot of young Israelis are leaving in very, uh, whenever they get the chance. So I, th- I think that's, uh, uh, I, I don't see how, how the conscription rates can, can suddenly shoot up because you have to, Tell people uh, that there's a kind of social contract, and there used to be a social contract because the Israeli economy used to be—I wouldn't say socialist, but but corporatist and organized—and and, and uh, the government would would assure that people would have uh, enough uh, security in, if they lose their job, if they get sick, and they would say, "Look, we as the government takes responsibility for the well-being of the population, the well—the population has to be part of that." Contract and sacrifice three years of their lives for the military. Yeah, but when when the new liberal phase kicks in and uh, the social security systems are are in shambles, then it's all about taking, uh, and and it's all about uh, you you get what you can get.
1: You mentioned you know the, the sense of entitlement by young Israelis not. You know, they don't want to go drag kid, Palestinian kids out of their beds in the middle of the night. But they're also not uh, explicitly questioning Zionism as the state ideology, as the settler colonial right. ideology. Um, do you see that shift happening any, anytime soon within like mainstream young Israeli society? Um, what do you think would make that shift actually happen?
0: I think, Nora, you have to, uh, it, 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 don't get your hopes up that the Israelis <laughs> are going to change their political views before the political situation changes. It's the other yeah. way around. It's always the other way around. Um, yeah. uh, Israelis will continue to support this, the situation that gives them privilege and gives them power as long as it exists. But as long as it does not, not exist anymore, they would, have, they would tell you they were always against it which was exactly what happened in South Africa. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you, you know, Israelis um, can, can, when there's a, a poll, if people support the bombing of Gaza, more than 90% of Jews say they're supporting it. But yeah. then when there is actually a bombing of Gaza, they're, they're, uh, the government calls the reserves. And the number of people who actually show up is about 10%. Or lower, uh, so it's an. Op- they're voting with their feet. Their opinions continue to be very uh, right wing and and pro occupation. Their actions speak otherwise. Interesting, interesting.
2: Um, I going back to Lebanon and uh, two thousand six and before that in two thousand. How significant do you think the successes were of the Lebanese resistance? fighters against the Israeli military, um, first expelling the occupation forces in the South in 2000 and then the war in 2006. And how do you, how did those losses by the Israeli military create a different narrative when it came to
0: Israel as the most powerful military in the region? Um, in many ways, it, it was um, a watershed moment for, for the Israeli political system. Uh, It destroyed the political career of many politicians and generals as well. I think it also affected uh, a lot of ways in which Israel is seen by the rest of the world. I think the United States, after 2006, no longer considered Israel to be a reliable uh, proxy for exerting power in the region and started to rely more and more heavily on Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. Uh, which became bigger regional players because the Israeli military didn't do its job. Uh, more recently, uh, the Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, tried to get Israel to invade Lebanon again. If you remember, uh, he uh, arrested or, or detained uh, Prime Minister Hariri uh, in Saudi right. Arabia for about uh, a week or two. And um, at that, at, during that time, there was various channels in which he tried to get Israel to invade Lebanon. Um, And uh, even the head of the Israeli military, the the chief commander gave an interview to the newspaper Al Fiyan, uh, uh, which is a Saudi newspaper, uh, an unprecedented event, talking about, you know, the joint enemy of Iran and how the countries actually have many (laughs) uh, similar goals, but also making it very clear that Israel has no intention of going back into what what in Israeli when Israel is often called the Lebanese mud, you know, this is the this is the Vietnam of Israel, they don't want to go there again. Mm. Let me just give you one example. One Israeli general, Gal, Gal Hirsch, who was the commander of the northern command of the Israeli forces during the invasion of Lebanon. And he did every possible mistake during that invasion because he had no idea what he was fighting up, uh, fighting against. He had no experience in actual combat. He was just, you know, used to to chasing Palestinian kids throwing stones.
1: Right. Um,
0: and and he was uh, very much uh, taking the blame for in the Israeli media for the failure of two thousand six. So he his poli- military career was over, and he started an arms company like many do. And he went straight to Georgia to sell them Israeli weapons. And I think this is amazing because the Georgia Georgian government was so much buying into the hype of how strong the Israeli military is. They thought if they can buy some equipment from this Israeli general, they would be able to stand up to the Russian military. <laughs> 2008, uh, South Ossetia uh, succeeded from Georgia and, uh, and Georgia... Uh, decided to stand up to, to Russia and try try uh, to, um, uh, st- uh, to to provoke a military conflict actually yeah uh, and I'm sure you remember that uh, the, their lines collapsed in, in about a minute or two and and the Russians were very f- found it very amusing to find Israeli communication devices in the Georgian military uh, and and to study them and how they work but of course um, this shows what this hype can do right. And then, of course, this Israeli general who got into a lot of trouble. He became more and more brazen because he wasn't making good business. And uh, he was under investigation by the FBI for uh, violating arms embargoes around the world. Eventually, the FBI decided to suspend that investigation, but he's still uh, uh, going to be pressed with charges for um, tax evasion. On, on his uh, money from from the arms uh, trade and he came into uh, he came back to israel because his company went bankrupt and tried to become the chief of police and the minister of the police wanted him to be the chief of police except that all of these scandals uh, made it impossible for him to get that job and and uh, so so you see how how these failing generals they are no longer the, the heroes and the leaders of israeli society They're, they've become sort of clowns. Hmm.
1: Well, maybe we can wrap up by talking a little bit about the efficacy and the strength of the BDS movement, boycott, divestment and sanctions, especially um, around civil society's response to the weapons industry and the technology, uh, surveillance technology industry. Um, Can you talk about where you see the BDS movement uh, at its at its strongest right now and and what it means going forward.
0: Yeah, I think I think the Israeli um, arms industry is not important enough to the Israeli economy, so that the BDS movement can make the Israelis feel that their arms are not wanted anymore. Actually, um, I think Israelis know enough or the average Israelis know enough about the arms industry to know that this sector is not particularly good on its uh, PR anyway. Uh, And I think that the BDS movement has always been much, much more effective when targeting companies that do care about their image. So the biggest successes of of BDS have always been those that targeted companies like Orange, uh, like Veolia. Uh, which which is promoting uh, an environmental uh, sustainability platform, um, and uh, um, not not so much Elbit Systems because you know most people don't buy Elbit Systems products. It's only governments that buy them, and, uh, right. <laughs> and there have been several attempts in different countries, especially in the Netherlands and Switzerland. Um, to uh, pro- to protest the use of uh, uh, contracts with Elbit Systems uh, or other Israeli companies uh, for the military. But those campaigns did not become very big because, again, people don't feel like it's really their own uh, lives that are affected. They don't, they don't see the d- direct connection. Um, so, so I'm not sure that the BDS movement is the, the biggest threat to the Israeli arms sector. I think, if anything, the... Uh, Palestinian resistance on the ground is really punching a hole through the Israeli armed sector, much much better. Even though you know Palestinians don't have laser systems that can intercept Israeli missiles, but they have other technologies. Uh, and um, I, I just want to give one example, which is uh, the for, uh, during the the Great March of Returns, uh, Palestinians in Gaza were using uh, balloons and uh, kites to. Um, attack Israel you know with little burning uh, pieces of, of cloth the Israeli um, uh, media was a buzz about this and people were furious at the arms industry how can they how can Palestinians fight against us with toys now no Israelis were killed by these attacks I, I mean not even one. But it doesn't matter because the media made it a big deal. They opened up every uh, evening uh, news um, with with the the terror of balloons, which which sounds really funny for people (laughs) not not, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, living there. But uh, how come the the arms industry cannot (laughs) all this
1: technology? This this was
0: something that that really exactly. So. The, then the Palestinians came up with a, a device that they called the new F-16, which is basically they took uh, a fishing net because, you know, fishermen in Gaza yeah. don't don't really get to use their fishing nets as much as they want to. Uh, uh, they, uh, so, so they have a lot of spares. They took a fishing net and com- connected it to a couple of uh, kites so that it flies up <laughs> to catch drones in the air. And they called it the F-16, the new F-16 to hunt the drones. Brilliant. Took a picture nice. put on social media. The Israeli arms companies decided they're not going to send their drones into Gaza anymore because they calculated even if there's a chance of one in a thousand that one of the drones will fall and the Palestinians will claim that it got trapped in the net and make a photo of the drone in the net or something, then nobody will ever buy an Israeli drone ever again. And because of that, they decided to to develop drones that uh, are very similar to the drones used by ISIS, basically a, a simple, a very simple drone that you can buy on Amazon or, or in, uh, online uh, shops and fit it with um, a tear gas canister so they can drop them on Palestinians. That, that was very ineffective, very cheap. Uh, also, that's basically zero technology or zero technological con- contribution by the Israeli arms industry. And this really shows that Palestinians understand how it works. It is about the image. And if they manage to attack the image, it doesn't really matter if you have a, an, a sophisticated engine or an optical system, or if you just tie a net to, to a kite. Uh, what eh, eh, Bottom line, Palestinians understood how these weapons work better than the Israelis.
1: I think that's a phenomenal um, point to end on, um, Shir Haver. You are you're an economic researcher and journalist, uh, and a member of Jewish Voice for a Just Peace and Just Peace in the Middle East. Uh, You're also the author of a few books, uh, including the economy, oh, sorry, including the privatization of Israeli security. And we'll provide a link to that review that we published uh, of your book on the Electronic Intifada, along with this podcast. Shir, thank you so much for all the work that you do and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, both of you.
1: And that's it for the electronic intifada podcast thanks to sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant for news information cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis visit us online at electronicintifada.net where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support The Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at The Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.